continued to kind of chip away at the book of Hebrews. We are almost there, but not quite. Um, And this week, the author is going to cash in the checks that he's been writing for the last like five chapters, really for the whole book, but explicitly for the last five chapters. He's been going through a lot of very granular theology. He's been teaching us in grave detail about what it means that Jesus is the great high priest, what it means that he is the mediator of a new covenant. And now he's going to answer the question, so what? Why does that matter? What difference does that make? How does that matter to a group of Christians who are being jailed for their faith, who are dying for their faith, who are having their possessions and belongings stolen from them? Why does any of that matter? Why should they care? Why has he spent so much time going there? And so we actually um, get to see and get a reminder again that Hebrews frames the Christian life as a journey. And it's a dangerous journey. It's a hard journey. It's a journey in the wilderness. So this is going back a few weeks now. But it's just a reminder. We are on a journey in the Christian life. And today, we get a glimpse, a really powerful glimpse of the end of that journey. And how the end of the journey actually meets us on our journey before we get to the end. And so it's going to actually bring us this morning into the cosmic throne room. I don't think, I don't, I didn't think this, so I'm guessing that you didn't either, that on your way to church this morning, you're thinking, oh, I'm driving into the cosmic throne room. What is that? Yeah, that is where we're going. And that is actually what comes to us and gives us encouragement, gives us grace to persevere, to continue to go forward in the Christian faith. And so all of the theology, all of the teaching of Hebrews so far is now turned into a very simple instruction. Draw near. All of it comes to this point of just drawing near to God. And so let's read. We have a shorter passage this morning but it's powerful, and there's a lot there. So let's dive right into it this morning. We are in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need this. (laughs) 
We need this reminder that we are on a journey, that we are on a path, and that along the way, there's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of temptation, there's a lot of failure. And Lord, this morning, your word tells us that you know that. Not only do you know it because you see it, but you know it because in the Son, you took on our flesh and you walked that road for us. Not only did you walk the road of life for us, but you took on death for us. All in order to make a way. And after dying, Lord, you rose. You rose again and stormed into the heavenly throne room where you sat down and are now interceding for us, sending your spirit to give us hope, to bring us near. And so, God, I ask that this morning that we would receive this, that we would rest in this hope, and that we would have our minds opened to what it actually means to be your people, to belong to you, and how we are on this journey, not isolated as individuals, but together as your people with your son as our head. We thank you, Lord, for that wonderful promise and ask that you would help us to understand it, to believe it, to live it out here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any West Wing fans in the room? A couple, yeah. Passionate crowd. Quiet, but passionate. <laughs> so the West Wing is a show about, what else, the U.S. presidency and all of the people that make the U.S. presidency work and really U.S. government work. And there is a scene, it's actually a type of scene, they kind of replay it throughout the show, where someone who's not kind of in the inner circle is brought into the Oval Office. And maybe it's their first time in the Oval Office, or they're just not used to it. But something that the show does, which maybe it's true, I don't know, I've never been in there, so I can't tell you. I assume that it is true, because I've been in similar circumstances, not quite that extreme. But what happens when you enter into the Oval Office and you see the resolute desk and you see the president, the seal of the president of the United States on the floor, you realize that this is the power center of the world and that the most powerful person in the world owns this room. And there's a disorientation that happens and People speculate that it was actually done intentionally, that they made the office oval to kind of throw people off as a negotiation tactic. And so they play that up in the show. I don't know if that's true or not, but one thing is clear, that when these ordinary people come into the office, they have an agenda. They have something that's important to them that they want to talk to the president about. And so this, they're really fired up, and then they go in there, and there's like, ringing in their ears, and their vision goes a little bit blurry. And all of a sudden, what was so important or seemed so important to them, they're like, oh, that's actually not that important. And so you see, like, whether it's a negotiation, the president always wins the negotiation, or if they have, like, a special interest, they kind of gain perspective of the bigger whole, and they're able to kind of fit their special interest into the bigger picture by the time they're done with the meeting. But the message is clear. When you are confronted with amazing and incredible power, 
you realize you don't belong. And you realize how small you are. And all of a sudden, your expectations shift. And so I thought that that was interesting as I was thinking about this passage today. Because I think that this is sometimes how we experience drawing near to God. If you don't think about it very long, we all want to draw near. We all want to get closer to God. I think that would be something that sounds nice. It sounds appealing. sounds like something that we should want. But if you think about it for long enough, it becomes terrifying. And this, I would argue, that, well, I don't even need to argue it. This is why I don't pray sometimes. Because prayer is actually entering into the throne room. Prayer is talking to the king. It's a conversation with the most powerful being. You are starting to have a line of communication with an uncreated being who created the heavens and the earth and rules over them. Ooh. <laughs> that's more than I bargained for. I just wanted to talk. And so it's so easy to believe, to assume that God does not care, that we're inconsequential, that what we wanted doesn't actually matter to him. It's also easy to assume we don't belong here. I don't belong in the throne room. That's the experience of all the prophets that are lifted up into the throne room. They fall on their face. And there's this beautiful picture of what it is and all of the sin, all of their uncleanness, all of their unworthiness is all of a sudden just emphasized and circled with exclamation points. It's like, you're imperfect. There is nothing else imperfect in here. You don't belong here. And so drawing near doesn't sound quite as fun when we consider it, when we think about it, when we think of ourselves actually doing it. And yet for the author of Hebrews, what he's saying is that this is the entire point, that drawing near is the only point of Jesus being the high priest. That's what he did. He brought you near. That drawing near is the way that you receive prophetic truth with Jesus as your prophet. You hear him. You speak to him. And it's the only way that you actually receive the lordship of Jesus as your king. And so you see that theme all the way that we talked about all the way back in chapter one, prophet, priest, and king. And all of that is assumed when we think about drawing near. We draw near to our prophet, our priest, and our king. And the amazing thing about this text is that we don't have vague instructions. Because drawing near is kind of abstract, especially when you're thinking about it in this world, because, well, first, God's invisible, and also, he's not here. He's in the heavenly throne room where Jesus is. And so how do we draw near? It's an abstract concept. It has something to do with relinquishing and turning over our hearts, our innermost being, our motivations, our desires, 
to him and bringing who we are in front of God. And so how do we do that? And so we're going to see this morning that we have very simple instructions for how to do that. We do that through prayer, through the sacraments, and through his word. Prayer, the sacraments, and his word. These have historically been identified as means of grace. So if you think about means of grace, it's a way to access grace. It's how grace comes to you in the Christian life. And remember, that is the covenant that Jesus is mediating. He is now mediating the covenant of grace. And so all of the benefits, all of the protections, all of the beauty of that relationship of the promises of God come to you through these means, through prayer, through sacraments, and through the word. How do I get there? Okay. The first one is almost self-explanatory in terms of what it actually means to draw near. So if you look at verse 22, this is where you get this exhortation, this command to draw near. If I had to think of one thing, one thing that we do, one tangible thing to, that we do as Christians to draw near to God, it's prayer. It's talking to him. It's communing with him. It's living in communication and relationship with him. It's making good on all of that. And so we draw near by praying. Anybody just killing it at prayer? I think this is one of those areas that when Christians are honest and they look at their lives, they look at their habits, they look at their rhythms, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of failure that happens. And I identify with that, just frankly. Prayer is hard. For all of those reasons that I talked about earlier, it's like when you realize who you're actually talking to, it's so easy to think that you don't matter, that what you say is inconsequential. And so let's just pause on prayer for a second, and I want to show you how understanding, receiving Jesus as your prophet helps you pray. Jesus as your prophet helps you pray. Here's why. Because the message of Jesus, the message of his ministry, of his teaching, of his life, of his death, is that you belong to me now. And I belong to you. You are mine, and I am yours. When you receive my life in substitute for your own, the Father sees you as his child. You are now adopted into the family of God. You are a son, a daughter of God. That is the prophetic word that is offered by Jesus. And so looking at Jesus, understanding him as Hebrews has taught us throughout the book so far, as your prophet, it teaches you who you are. You receive your identity from that. And now if you're believing, if you're resting, if you're trusting that identity, 
that he puts on you as his child, then what kind of perfect father would minimize, would downplay, would ignore the request of their child? No matter how seemingly insignificant, we're reminded that even earthly fathers have tenderness towards their children's needs, want to relate and commune with their children. And those earthly fathers are all sinful. How much more will our perfect heavenly father hear us and receive us? And so in prayer, as we are drawing near, we are able to trust that we are not only going to a place where we belong, but we are going to a place where we're wanted. Where when we pray, the Lord delights in our prayers. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And on the Christian life, on this journey, persevere in prayer. Keep praying. Because you will begin to experience that and you will see how the grace that comes to you through prayer will actually transform you more and more into the person that Jesus says you already are, a child of God. And what happens is there's momentum that's created in your prayer life. As you pray, all of a sudden your desires are changed more in tune with his, and so your prayer will correspond to his will. And one of the beautiful things that Jesus does as he intercedes for us is he takes our imperfect prayers and he refines them and he purifies them. And he answers every single one of your imperfect prayers perfectly. And so if you pray for a new job, you can pray for a new job. And God will answer that prayer. It might not be with a new job. It might be with preventing you from getting a new job because what you're actually looking for and what you're wanting is actually better received in something else that he's going to give you. And that is what we have to learn. We'll get, we'll get to it at the end, but we don't do this alone. It requires a whole community to do this. So prayer the second way that we draw near is through the sacraments. So it's just right after drawing near, and we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is building on that imagery of what the priest would do. He would sprinkle the people with the blood of the sacrifice. He would sprinkle the holiest of holies with the blood of the sacrifice, right? And so he's purifying them. Those, we've learned, were just shadows of the true blood that cleanses and purifies, which is Christ's blood in his death poured out for you. Those words are familiar, aren't they? We say them every week. How do we receive the blood of Christ? We receive it through communion. Every week we come to this table down here 
and we remember, we experience that Jesus shed his blood for you. And this is speaking specifically of his priestly work. He is the offering, and he is the one who makes that offering. He is the priest and the sacrifice. It's his blood. And he has given to the church the consistent experience of receiving the blood of Christ. And all of the wonderful ways that that happens to us. We remember our sin. We remember our unworthiness as we approach the table. But then we remember that that blood makes us pure. It's not because of us that we can approach the table. It's because of him. And so our belonging, our place in the heavenly throne room, in the holiest of holies, with God in his full presence, is enabled by our receiving the blood of Christ. It's how we receive his grace. And look at what it says it does. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So first of all, you see that your heart was dirty with something. It needed to be cleansed with that blood. So you're polluted. You are dirty with sin, with the sin of this world. And that is what Isaiah identifies, isn't it? When he goes into the throne room, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim takes a coal and he touches it to his lips and purifies Isaiah's lips. We are made pure by the blood of Christ, by receiving his blood. And we do that by trusting it, by trusting him, we receive it. It's also clean from an evil conscience. You can think of conscience in this context as basically the memory of sin. Our past haunts us. So not only do we feel dirty, but we think that we are dirty because of sin. And when the blood of Christ is received in faith, the evil conscience is cleansed. It's destroyed. So now the memory is not of your sin. The memory is of the forgiveness of God through our Lord. And this is what we receive when we receive communion, when we receive the Lord's Supper with faith. We are actually benefiting from it. We are actually having grace brought to our souls as they are in need. It's drawing us near. Our bodies are also washed with pure water. The Old Covenant, remember, how would you be cleansed in the Old Covenant? How would you, they know that you're part of the covenant community? Well, men would be circumcised on the eighth day. And it was bloody. And there was the signifying of being cut off should you break the covenant. Right? That's what circumcision symbolizes. Well, in the new covenant, in the better covenant that Christ is mediator of, circumcision is replaced by baptism. Think about that. No more is there a cutting off or a threat of being cut off. Instead, you're cleansed 
Think of the connotations, the differences there. There's a threat that you might be removed from the rest of the people and alienated and be far away from the presence of God in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, your sin is dealt with through a washing. Paul describes baptism as being buried in Christ. So there's part of you that goes into the water to die. You die to your old self, and you are raised from the water with Christ. In his resurrection, you now live. And so in baptism, we receive grace that shows our union with Christ. It shows that now that we are trusting him, it's no longer our debt. It's no longer our sin. It's his. He purchased it. And so in the sacraments, you see and you experience physically in your bodies what it looks like to belong to God. And it looks like being washed, being made pure, being cleansed. And we receive his perfect priestly work through those sacraments. And so just pausing really quick to answer a couple of probably practical questions, like do we really need baptism and the Lord's... Like can't we just... Trust Jesus? Is that, isn't that enough? Well, what you see in Scripture is that this is how you trust Jesus. Right? So to kind of put yourself outside of the means of grace is essentially to say, yeah, some people might need those, but I'm good. And we will get there next week, but that is dangerous ground to tread. Because we should be hungry and thirsty for the grace of God like the Israelites were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And so we should not dismiss or turn away his grace as he offers it to us. And so, yeah, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Certainly not. But what the word says is that this is a confirmation of that faith. This is how you receive the grace that enables you to persevere in that faith. So be baptized. And the same goes with regularly taking the Lord's Supper. Can you exist outside of a church? Can you exist as a Christian not going to church and partaking of the sacraments on Sundays? Yeah, you can. Of course you can. And I know that it's not a simple thing oftentimes to come to church for folks. Like, you've been hurt. Things have gone wrong at churches. And that's a shame. Because we're going to see what the church should be doing at the very end of this passage. But here is what I want to encourage you with, is that the reality that is brought in the sacraments does not depend on the perfection of the church that offers it to you. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That means that God is still bringing you grace through those sacraments, even if the person who is giving you those sacraments has abandoned the faith through his actions, through his deeds, through what he says. God was still working through these means. 
So I just want to encourage you to persevere in that. Open your heart again to receiving his grace. It's how you draw near. And then finally, through the word, let us hold fast in verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering. And this is referring to the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. The earliest forms of it are identified as little symbols. The earliest one is called the Roman symbol. It was basically the church saying, what is it that we believe? And they wrote some stuff down. That became the Apostles' Creed. It's what we have been praying through the last couple weeks in the Heidelberg Catechism. Hold fast to that. That is what Scripture teaches about who God is, who you are, and how you can belong to him, and how he can belong to you. Hold fast to it. In our context, when we hear these things, all, of, all three of these things, I think we are tempted to think individually. We think of prayer as just being alone, praying for ourselves, praying for things that we need. We think of the, sacrifice, the sacraments, maybe, yeah, we did them in a church, but primarily they're about us, about how I experience God or how I made a decision for God, what's happening to me as an individual. And we think about the word as we understand it, as we interpret it. And this is what makes reading the Bible very carefully important. Because notice, the author does not say, you have a great priest. He does not say, you should draw near. He does not say, you should hold fast the confession. All of the pronouns are plural. The assumption, the implications are, is that actually we are doing this together with each other and we are mutually dependent on one another to do it. You cannot draw near to God by yourself. You can't. If you think that you can, you are trying to go into the throne room by a different way. It's not the new and living way that Jesus has opened for us. Here's why I can say that so confidently. When Jesus stormed the throne room, when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and entered into the, heaven, the heavenly throne room, the reality of the Holy of Holies, he did it with human flesh. And he did it as our head. He is our head. The church is his body. So to think of going into the throne room by yourself or drawing near to God by yourself individually apart from this bigger picture, it's, it's like as silly as thinking that you can go to sleep but your hand still be awake. Like it doesn't make sense because in Jesus' economy, in his plan for your salvation, he saved you as part of the whole. And that changes how you go into the throne room. That changes how you live this Christian life, too, doesn't it? 
Because all of a sudden, it's not just me isolated from everything else. It's you as connected to the new human project that God is working ever since Adam and Eve's first sin to remake and redeem all things and to have a kingdom of priests reigning with him over all of creation. And that's what the end of the church is. It's us together doing that. And so how, if that is the picture of the end, us together doing that, you see that in Revelation, you see that it's every tribe, tongue, and nation, this remade humanity in the heavenly throne room with God, then why on earth would we try and do that by ourselves in this life, where we are hoping for that, where we receive that reality by faith? We can't do it. You'll last like maybe five years, but it'll peter out. We need each other. And so I've got a couple of, couple of questions for you. As we think about doing this together, as we think about how the Spirit is now working out the plan of the Father as executed by the Son in the people of God together now, today, I want to ask you a couple questions. What Christians in your life depend on you for this? What Christians in your life do you depend on for this? If you're honest with yourself, is it just you and Jesus? Because that's not the way that we see. The way that we see is for the whole church, and you are connected to that. That is what Jesus says about you. You are my body. You're not just like a little mini body running around. You are my body. And so as you think about your relationship to the church, think about how dependent you are on the church. Because that will reveal something to you about your, the nature of your faith. If it's believing culturally as an individual or believing historically as the body of Christ. This is so important for your assurance, friends. This is so important for holding on to the confession of your hope without wavering. Here's why. Because when you know that you are connected to the church, and I'm talking not just Portico, but I'm talking the universal historic church of all time, all of God's people. When you know that that is what you're connected to, you can see its effect over time. You can see what happens when God transforms a people with grace. You can see that it's possible. The confession of our faith is the same as a North African in the fourth century. You know how much has changed since then? But those articles, those statements of who God is, they've remained the same. 
You can trust them. God does not change. He remains faithful. And then making it kind of granular in church life today, what church membership is, it's a group of God's people saying, you are one of us. One of us. You are one of God's people. Right? So every time you approach this table, you're not doing it in isolation. You're doing it as part of the body. And there's a lot There's a lot that happens as we do that. And this is why verse 24 and 25 are so important. Because it's not just about me coming to the table. It's not just about you coming to the table. I want us to think about how the person next to us is coming to that table. To pray for them. To encourage them. To actually consider how can we stir each other up to love and good works. Less about what am I going to get out of meeting with my community group tonight, and more, how am I going to make it easier for these brothers and sisters of mine to live the Christian life? How can I encourage them? When I come to church on Sunday, that is the mindset that God envisions that Jesus wants for his people, is to be thinking, how can I encourage? How can I help people grow in grace and in faith? How can we do that? And so there's a couple of things I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with this. First, this, I want us as a, as a church, as a people, as Christians, I want to, us to take this more seriously than anything else in our lives. There's a lot of things competing for our attention, for our effort, for our desires, our careers, our families, our pursuits, our social status, our bank accounts, all of these things. Yes, they are important, but only when this is most important. When living life in this way with God's people is most important to us. Take it more seriously than anything else in your life. We'll get there next week. But the author reminds these Hebrew Christians of when they were taking it most seriously. And he tells them, recall those former days. After you were first enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, being publicly exposed to reproach, being beaten, being imprisoned, having your stuff stolen from you because you were now socially vulnerable. Recall the joy that you had. Recall the desire for the knowledge of God, for drawing near to God that you had then. And recover it. Renew it. So I want us to step into that. The second thing that I want us to do as we think about drawing near in light of everything that Jesus is and what he's done for us, and this might only apply to a handful of you, but it's important because it's something that you will continue to spin your wheels in mud if you don't hear this and listen to it. Some of us, when we think about going into the presence of God, when we think about communing with God, we get incredibly introspective. 
We look inside. Maybe a lot of us do this. I don't know. I'm prone to this. I'll start considering my faith, all of the different ways I've failed. I'll start considering my life, all of the ways that I haven't lived up to what I say that I believe. And all of a sudden, I'll start questioning. I'll start doubting. I'll start reasoning my way into thinking, maybe I'm not really part of this community. Maybe I don't deserve it. I've spent so much time looking at my faith that I haven't done what the author is instructing us to do. And I haven't actually seen the flow of this book. He's just spent how many chapters talking about who? Jesus. So instead of analyzing and obsessing over your own faith, Turn that attention towards Jesus. Get to know him on that level. Understand who he is as your prophet, priest, and king. Understand why it matters that he is our great high priest sitting over the house of God. Consider him, his blood, his resurrection. Think about him. Dwell on him. And then seek to encourage others to do that. Because if you are looking, if you are wanting to draw near to God, and then your instinct is to look inside, it's about as helpful as wanting to lose weight and just standing on the scale and looking at the numbers. Like, you can do that as much as you want. That's not how you lose weight. Thinking about how weak or how strong your faith is, is not how you build faith. It's not how you live the Christian life. You live the Christian life by drawing near to Jesus through prayer, through the sacraments, through his word, together with the people of God. And as we do that together, that beautiful picture of the heavenly throne room comes near to us on our journey, and we start to actually experience belonging. And as we do that progressively over time, over decades, hopefully, now we see ourselves united together and united to Christ. And we look forward to that and we long for it. And we know that it's because of his life that we belong there. It's because of his life that we can pray. It's because of his life that we are received by God, that we are given an inheritance of a new creation coming down to this earth, and that we will rule together as heavenly priests over the entire cosmos, reflecting God's image, his glory, his beauty to a remade and perfect world. That is the vision. That is a vision that's big enough for you to make it the most important thing in your life. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you've given us this reminder this morning that drawing near to you, it's really not that much about us as individuals. And yes, we experience it. We receive it individually. But Lord, it is so much more full than we can ever comprehend apart from each other. We need each other. We need the diversity 
of each other to help us understand who you are, to help us understand who we are, who you are making us to be, who you have promised that we will be. And so, Lord, as we are continuing on this journey of life, I ask that we would remember all of these things, that we would receive the priesthood of your Son, that we would enjoy it, that we would help each other enjoy it corporately, or that we would reflect on just how big this whole plan is. And God, we thank you for giving us the promises that are contained in it, and we thank you for being a God who has never lied, never will lie. You are faithful, you are trustworthy, you are praiseworthy. Help us to receive that here this morning and to worship and love you and to love each other. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.